Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church family. To those who are online as well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again as we open back up to Matthew chapter 1 in our Advent series, King of Kings. And we have been looking this week and last week at the earthly ancestors of Jesus Christ. Last week we were in the the first verse of Matthew chapter 1, and we saw that Jesus Christ is the son of David. And also he was known as the son of Abraham. But this week, instead of seeing just those heroic insiders that are part of his family tree, we're going to place our focus on what might be viewed as the outsiders or the the troublesome outsiders. I I don't know. Do do most families have some of those in the family tree somewhere? Yeah, the early service did too. Yeah, I guess I guess we just kind of see that at times. And maybe for some of us, we are those outsiders, right? Well, um, as you are turning to Matthew chapter 1, let me tell you about a show that has run for several seasons on PBS that deals with ancestry. In fact, it's called Finding Your Roots. And a Harvard professor by the name of Henry Louis Gates is the host of the show. And what he does is he brings in famous people, And they sit down behind a camera, and he unfolds for them stories of their family tree. And oftentimes, they are surprised at what they are learning that has been discovered about their family. So that's finding your roots. Now, back in 2014, there was an email leak that happened, and Henry Louis Gates, the show's host, was emailing the president of the company and basically saying, we've got a problem. One of our guests is a little upset with what we discovered in their family tree. Let me read you the email. He said this, one of our guests has asked us to edit out something about one of his ancestors, and that is that he owns slaves. Now, four or five of our guests this season descend from slave owners, including Ken Burns. We've never imagined, we've never had anyone ever try to censor or edit what we found. He's a megastar. It's Ben Affleck. What do we do? End quote. The company president advised that maybe they should, in fact, um, remove the revelation. This is what he wrote. I would take it out if no one knows. But if if it gets out that you are editing the material based on this kind of sensitivity, then it gets tricky. End quote. And it did get tricky. In fact, the show got um, suspended for a time because of the way they edited material for Ben Affleck, but did not for other people in the show. In response to the leaked emails, it became a public deal. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, Even a newspaper article was written about it. And Ben Affleck apologized for having made the request and admitted that he was embarrassed by his slave-owning relative and wanted to distance himself from him. Now, here's the question. If PBS did a documentary on finding the roots of Jesus, what do you suppose they'd find? I mean, after all, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? Surely his lineage is perfect, right? Well, not exactly. You see, first off, each of his relatives, they're humans, imperfect humans, and they are sinners in need of grace. And in addition to that, some had significant downfalls with painful consequences. 
Yes, we looked at King David last week, but we didn't tell all of the story, did we? Because even in his life, there were some, uh, uh, some uh, tremendously painful downfalls that caused a lot of heartache for him and for others. So as we will see today, Jesus as well had outsiders in his ancestry. And they too have a story to tell. And if we really think about it, their story is our story. It's a story of God's majestic grace being being offered to those who would simply turn to him. And we're going to see examples of that. We're going to see examples of people that, that turn back to God after walking away from him. We're going to see an example of one that didn't turn back to God. These are the outsiders that are part of his lineage. And as we uh, consider this today, maybe, maybe as we read about people who are desperate, people who were discouraged, and it, it, it sometimes people who had uh, tremendous failures, maybe in some way we will find a closer connection with them than we did with Abraham of last week. Not many of us can relate to the idea of being the father of multitudes or the father of an entire nation, right? But maybe recognizing that we ourselves struggle with sin, that we've had our own history, maybe we can relate to some of these who came uh, to God looking for forgiveness and were included in part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So if you've ever thought that your life would never be accepted by the Lord, this morning, by using Matthew chapter 1, I'd like to challenge your thinking on that. If you've ever thought that you were too far away from God or that, or that maybe you're too far gone and he would never let you come back, I would like to challenge that thought this morning as we look at some individuals in Matthew chapter 1 together. Let us see today that Matthew has a story to tell. He wants us to know that God sent a Savior. He sent the Messiah. He sent a deliverer, a rescuer for all of the world. And for those who turn and those who respond, they can receive the grace that he freely offers. So let's jump into Matthew 1 this week, and we're going to see a message of hope that just really pours forth out of these verses. And I know that that may be a little surprising. You think a genealogy is just a list of names. But each name represents a story. And there are stories of God's grace found in these names that we will look at. So maybe you didn't expect to come looking for hope this morning. But maybe you've come in need of hope. And so with that in mind, I invite you to Matthew chapter 1. The first person that we're going to look at, I'm calling him in the outline, the insider who turned back. So we're going to look at a couple of insiders, or we're going to look at a couple of outsiders. And he's an insider. Why do I call him that? Because it's David, King David. And he was specially chosen by God to follow King Saul and be the king of Israel. And he was, in fact, known as the greatest king of Israel. He was not an idolater. He led the, the people of, of Israel with wisdom. He encouraged them to worship the one true God. In fact, he was known as being a man after God's own heart. And in fact, if you look at the book of Psalms, 73 of these Psalms were written by David. So we have a, one that, that is an insider, but what we're also going to see this morning and be reminded of 
is that he, all, he also had a serious downfall that had uh, uh, consequences that, that impacted many, many people. And we are reminded of this in the lineage of Jesus. Look at verse 6 with me in Matthew chapter 1. It says this, And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. It's interesting. I don't know if you like to underline in your Bible, but that, those three words are important. By Uriah's wife. Because typically as we go through the genealogies, we oftentimes just see the listing of the fathers, right? It's very, very uh, uh, standard, typical in that culture in that day. But along the way, we see some of the names of the mothers given as well. But it's interesting that it says here that he had a son named Solomon, but it has another man's name there. Now, who is Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. Now, if he wanted to identify the mother, he simply could have said, David fathered Solomon by Bathsheba. But Matthew didn't write it that way. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was giving more detail by putting another man's name. In the, in, the, uh, in the genealogy here. He gave what you might call a, an exclamation point here with this, with this information. What he's doing is he's forcing us as the readers of the text to be reminded of that part of the history, that part of David's life. You say, what happened? David was on the rooftop of his palace. He saw a woman bathing. And he summoned for her to be brought to him. She was a married woman. And her husband's name was Uriah, a military leader who was off at war. But David sinned. He sinned with a sexual, sexual sin of adultery. And come to find out, Bathsheba would be expecting soon thereafter. He tried to cover his crime. He tried it in a couple different ways, but ultimately he put Uriah or had one of the, the, the generals of the army put Uriah in a position in battle where he certainly would be killed as other troops came back away from him. So David committed adultery, and you could also see that he also was responsible for the taking of another man's life. These are deep, deep sins, and the consequences are clear. 2 Samuel chapter 11 picks up in the occasion, in the, in the account here with Bathsheba when it says in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, look at the end of that verse, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Yes. He did write the 23rd Psalm. Yes, he did write other Psalms. He was known as a man after God's own heart. But we see that he is a fallen sinner as well. The Lord would use a prophet to confront David. Do you remember that account? Nathan was uh, charged to confront King David about his sin. And in fact, he even, he even did it in a way where he presented a little story about uh, a man with sheep and about how one was stolen and taken from, a, from him by another and, and David got angry, and Nathan used that story to say, you, you are that man. 
You are the man that did this. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. So we see, even in the midst of all of this, that there is forgiveness given. And that's, that's a key for us to remember. In fact, it's spoken of in greater detail in one of the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 51. And we see his repentance as he writes this prayer, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Have we not looked to those verses ourselves and, and looked at them to see that, that God will allow us to repent, that he will allow us to come to him and, and, and agree with him that sin is sin and that it needs to be dealt with, and that yet in God there is mercy and there is grace. Maybe someone here today needs to be reminded of Psalm 51 and to know that it's not hopeless. It's not all over, that God didn't just put you on a shelf, that, that he's willing for you to come back. That's what repentance means, to return. Let's continue reading. Verse 9, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Aren't you glad that God is a forgiving God? The early service was, because they responded and said, yes, we are. Now, the late service, I'm not so sure. You guys may have to think about it a little more. I don't know. But he is a forgiving God. And we know that as sinners, we need that. We need to have that renewed spirit. We need to have that, that heart that's cleansed, because if not, we just stay in the mire and the bondage of that sin. So thanks be to God that indeed he is a God of forgiveness. So we see David, yes, he's a hero of the faith, but he's also one with serious, sinful failures. In a minute, we're going to see the name Rahab in the lineage of Jesus. Do you remember Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. And the point here that I'm trying to make is whether one is a king or a prostitute, it is only by the grace of God that one can be brought near to him. The king and the prostitute, they are on the same level. Both, both of them in need of grace and mercy. But before we get to Rahab, there is another king. In fact, there's many kings listed in the genealogy, but there's one more that I want to focus on this morning. He is a descendant of David, served as a king of Israel. So he also could be considered an insider. This insider turned away from God. But unlike David, he did not repent. This is the insider who was cut off. That's the second point in our message this morning. It comes from verses 11 and 12. And if, if you've been following along in, in our Advent book, uh, this Advent season, King of Kings, excellent, excellent book. Stephanie did a tremendous job writing it, researching, pulling so much together. Our family has enjoyed uh, reading these. We've got ornaments that we are, are, uh, that we've put together and that we're, that we're putting on the tree each night as we are just thinking through the depth of the stories that, that came before 
and pointed to the birth of Jesus Christ. But you may remember that on Friday, based on verse 11, we considered the king Josiah. Josiah was a good king. In fact, in our reading, it said that he was a king that destroyed the idols. He repaired the temple. He found the book of the law and had it read. And Josiah's heart was tender toward the Lord. And and Stephanie made a good point on, on page 45 when she writes this. She said, Josiah was a good king who loved the Lord with all his heart. And he taught the people to know, love, and serve God. It's a joy to see his name there in the line of Jesus. And I think we could look at the lineage and say, there's a bright spot. There's Josiah. He's the one that, that, that we can look at and say, here's one who, who was faithful. Here's one who obeyed. But just two generations later, just two, his grandson was very, very different. In fact, he's the one, Jeconiah or Coniah, that's also mentioned here in verses 11 and 12. Let me read them. It says, And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Just to be clear, there was another son between Josiah and Jeconiah. So he, he was a grandfather, Josiah was. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. So these are all names, and they may not each just strike us, but if we go back into the Old Testament, we can get some detail about who these individuals were. And so, as I said, we can cheer for Josiah, but then we have Jehoiakim, his son, and then Jeconiah, his grandson, also known as Coniah. These two would take the throne one after the other, and things changed dramatically. If you looked yesterday, day 12, the whole point of yesterday's devotion was that God keeps his promises. And he even keeps his promises in times when we would wonder, how in the world is he going to keep it? How is he going to fulfill it? How is it, gonna, how is it really going to come together? Because as we will see in the line of David, things got very, very interesting because of a curse that was placed on Coniah. You see, after King Josiah died, he had a son, Eliakim, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. He was under the rule of the Egyptian pharaoh at the time. And underneath that, he was then placed to go under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians, who would eventually complete the exile of Israel. And so it says that the Nebuchadnezzar took King Jeconiah and his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officials to Babylon. So we have godly King Josiah, but then we have Jehoiakim, not godly. He was an idolater. And then his son, Coniah, even more so. And we see finally that God says, I'm going to place a curse on this line. Now remember, what line is he a part of? He's a part of the line of David. That's the same line that the Messiah is to come through. So how can we have a promise that says that there's going to be a Messiah coming through the line of David, and yet listen to what is told to us in Jeremiah 22 about this king, Jeconiah. As I live, this is the Lord's declaration Though you, Coniah, son of Jehoiakim, grandson, 
of Josiah, the king of Judah. If you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you from it. In fact, I will hand you over to those you dread who intend to take your life to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Chaldeans. Do you get the idea here that God is displeased with him? Very clear, right? Listen to what he says. Because with this rebellion, there is going to be a steep punishment. We don't get the words here that Coniah is turning back. We don't get the idea like David that he's repenting or owning his sin. Not at all. And so in verse 30, this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as childless. A man who will not be successful in his lifetime. None of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, this does not mean that he didn't have children. He did have sons. But none of them would succeed him to the throne. His bloodline is now cursed. It's over. God had all he was going to take, and he shut it down. His judgment and punishment was being established. Now, again, he's the king of Judah. And the way it works here is that he had been in succession all the way through the line of King David. But yet now it says that his descendants will not sit upon the throne. Again, we uncover a major problem. Since the Messiah has already been prophesied, as we saw last week, that he has to come through the lineage of King David. God promised a descendant of King David to sit upon the throne, even referencing it as an eternal reign. But here we see that Jeconiah and his lineage is cursed. So you might be asking the question, how then was the Messiah, the son of David, going to qualify to be the son of David if the bloodline is cursed? Well, that's where we come to the genealogies. Matthew will show you that Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David all the way back through Jeconiah to King David because we see it listed here in Matthew chapter 1. This is the bloodline of Joseph. But Jesus does not have the blood of Joseph. It's not his bloodline. He's born of a virgin. It's the blood of Mary. And so then we go over to Luke chapter 3, and what do we find? Another genealogy. But as we get between David and down to the days of Jesus, what do we note? We note that the names are different. And some might say, well, how do we, how do we, how can we resolve the conflict between Luke 3 and Matthew chapter 1 when the names in that portion of the genealogy are different? And here's the answer. Luke chapter 3 is Mary's genealogy. And it begins with the word Joseph because that's, that was typical. That was the custom of the day was, to, was to, to speak of the fathers. But then as it went to the grandfathers, it wasn't the Matthew 1 grandfather that Jesus had through Joseph. It was Eli through Mary. And so all the way through, we now see a different line going all the way back, not to Coniah, not to Solomon, but to someone else, one of Solomon's brothers, one of David's other sons named Nathan. 
That was the line that would go to Mary, the bloodline, if you will. And Luke preserved that for us in Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 31. Son of Malia, son of Minna, son of Mattatha, son of Nathan, son of David. Now, Luke, Luke goes the other direction when he writes his genealogy, but you get the point of, of who followed who. Now, just to be clear, in these genealogies, when we use the English word um, son, it really should rightfully be understood descendant. Because as we've already noted, sometimes it's a grandfather. There may be a, a generation or, or two that are not always included, not every single name. But as we see here, uh, we do understand that David had a son named Nathan, and that was the line that went all the way through. Now, his line was not cursed like Coniah's. So again, we see the difference of the grandfathers, and that helps us to understand. Uh, in fact, Matthew gives the paternal line. Luke gives the maternal line. Matthew goes Joseph, Jacob, eventually Coniah and Solomon and David, but, but that's not how it works with Mary's line. It's Mary, Eli, eventually Nathan, and then David. Here's how John MacArthur explains it. He said, Jesus has the legal right to rule through his earthly father, Joseph, but he has the blood of David in his veins because of his mother. So either way, he is a descendant of David. He can be king legally through Joseph. He can be king naturally through Mary. Again, because of that curse, do we see God's grand plan of a virgin birth and why it was so important? Joseph was in Coniah's line, a cursed line, no more kings to follow. But again, he wasn't the blood relative of Jesus. Mary was. And her line wasn't cursed. But let's get back to Coniah. As we think about him, and I've already made the comparison between Coniah and David, both of them did wrong, but David repented. Coniah did not. And he received punishment, the consequences of his rebellion. And, and I think there's a lesson here for us. In fact, there's probably lots of lessons. Well, one of them is that, that, that he could have obeyed. He was only two generations from a godly king. Two generations. But he didn't follow in the steps of Josiah. He didn't, he didn't revere the Lord. He didn't obey the word. He didn't encourage the people to follow after God. That's not what he did. He instead was an idolater and he led people away from God. And God's mercy was, was, was available. But he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't choose that direction. Because I thought about this this week. Could he have responded like David? Could, have he, could he have repented? Could have he turned to the Lord? He could have, but he didn't. And he was only two generations from a godly king. So there's a lesson here for us about the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment. I know that we oftentimes don't think about that, and we probably don't typically think about it in the Christmas season as we emphasize the, the better parts of the narrative. But it is real. That's why Jesus had to come, was to deal with the penalty of sin. There's a warning here to us today about what it means to live a life of faithful obedience to God rather than following in the steps of Coniah and rejecting him. But there's one final category I'd like us to see this morning. And they, I've not called insiders, I've called them outsiders. But 
They were outsiders who were brought near. We find them in verse 3 and in verses 5 and 6. And there are going to be some names that you, you probably recognize. And uh, we're going to see that, that they were brought near and that they were included in, in the genealogy of Jesus. Look at verse 3 with me. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is a woman's name. Uh, again, it's a little unusual that we typically are seeing all the, the fathers or grandfathers, and yet here Matthew wants us to know this name, Tamar. Matthew uh, mentioned this name for a reason. Just like he forced us to remember the story of Uriah and Bathsheba, he's forcing us to remember the story of Tamar and Judah. Tamar had been married to Judah's son. Judah was the father-in-law of Tamar. Verse 3 tells us that Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, the daughter-in-law. She tricked him. She posed as a prostitute and had children by him. Yikes. Genesis chapter 38. As I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, I'm glad it's, fam- it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a kids' church day, right? <laughs> Not a family worship Sunday. Genesis 38, sad, sad story, really. Incest. And uh, these people are still listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So you could say that Tamar was an outsider morally. But yet who else was an outsider morally? Judah, right? Pursuing a prostitute. But yet, somehow they are there in the lineage. It's as if Matthew is wanting to remind us of why Jesus came. What did we say that the name Jesus meant? The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And we see there was a need for a Savior. Look at verses 5 and 6. A couple of other outsiders. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. So we have a few other names of of, of mothers listed here. Because once again, Matthew is forcing us to remember something. Let's think about Rahab. Rahab was not Jewish. She truly was an outsider. She was a Canaanite. And she lived in Jericho. She lived in the wall of the city. And her her occupation was that of a prostitute. And yet when the spies of Israel were coming to assess what was happening in Jericho and how they they could take the city, she encountered them. And she gave them a place to stay. And she began hearing about God. In fact, she'd heard of him already. But as she begins to hear and see what's happening, she not only verbalizes a faith in God, but but her actions and her works, if you will, demonstrate a faith in God. Now, she lived in the city of Jericho that was destined for destruction. But she was spared by a man named, you remember? Joshua. Joshua. We said last week that Joshua is the same name as Jesus and that 
uh, in the Hebrew, and it means the Lord saves. And Joshua saved her from destruction in Jericho. You know, Jesus saves us from an even greater destruction, doesn't he? The penalty and bondage of sin. Well, as I said, Rahab verbalized a belief in God. She placed her faith in the one true God, unlike the people of Jericho and unlike the king that was there. And do you remember that when we were studying the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 earlier this year, that Rahab's name is listed as well? There she is. Great hall of faith because of her faith. Yet she was an outsider, a Canaanite. but She was brought in. There's another outsider in verse 5. Ruth. Remember where Ruth was from? Yes, even in 2020, as, as long as this year has seemed uh, seemingly been, we did study the book of Ruth earlier this year. And we, we saw that Ruth was from Moab. She was a Moabite, not Jewish. The Moabites were enemies of the Jews. They weren't even allowed to, to come near uh, the place of worship. You may remember from our study that Ruth left Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and went back to the city that Naomi and, and uh, uh, her, her deceased husband were from. Do you remember they went back to the city? Maybe we should say the little town of Bethlehem, right? And that's where they were at. And we saw that, that, uh, that Ruth was committed to Naomi, and she was committed to the God of Naomi. And we saw that she would marry Boaz. But let's look back in our genealogy here. Who was the mother of Boaz? What does it say there? Rahab, verse 5, right? You see what's happening here? We have another outsider, not a moral outsider, but an outsider in the sense of where she's coming from. But she was brought near. All of these outsiders, they have one thing in common. They are earthly ancestors of Jesus Christ. And can I ask you again, do you see the reason that Matthew is including these names? The outsiders were brought near. There's a message there for us. Right here in the opening chapter of Matthew, he is communicating that Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. That's his mission. This is the opening chapter of the New Testament. And as only Matthew could, writing to a Jewish audience, he is clearly portraying, yes, all of the bad apples and all of the issues of the line, not covering it up, but exposing it, because that's why the world needs a Savior. We're broken people. We're desperate. We are sinners. We are under the curse and the bondage of that sin, unless... We receive the free gift of God's grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to throw stones at sinners. He came to redeem them. And they are even included in His genealogy. Let me wrap this up. We've seen this morning over and over again that God's mercy includes desperate people. People who were hurting. People who were in need of, of what only God could provide. His rescue. And maybe for some of us today that are here, or maybe some who are watching online, you could say, you know, that's what I need. This has been a hard year. Hard year. There may be some who are watching that, that they, have not, they have not, over the years, given a lot of attention to the Lord. 
Maybe they've not pursued who he is and what he can bring. But this year has, has really exposed some things where you see a need for, for hope in him. And so I think that before we leave this genealogy behind, we need to ask ourselves if it, if it connects to us. Can I ask you, is, is your name in the genealogy of Jesus? And, and I don't mean as an ancestor. Think of it from the other way, as a descendant. Because you're invited. You're invited to be one of his. And we can see that, that he has dealt gracefully and graciously with those who have come before us. That's why he came. That's why he came, was to deal with, with our sin, with our heartache. You might say, well, pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't think God would have me. Well, could I say based upon Matthew chapter 1 that we've been reminded that whether prostitute or king, they are equally lost and yet equally loved. And maybe, maybe someone today needs to respond. To respond to a, to a God who forgives, a God who restores, a God who heals. Praise God this Advent season for the gift of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Sinners like David. Sinners like Rahab. Sinners like you. Sinners like me. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the truth of your word that has once again highlighted your character and your nature as a God who forgives, a God who restores and welcomes back. And Father, as we think about that invitation, that invitation that you've given, we pray, Lord, that even today there will be those who respond. Father, we know that, that your word clearly says that you love this world so much that you gave your one and only son that whosoever any of us whosoever would come to him could have everlasting life so father we pray that prayer for those watching today we pray this prayer for those who are present that they may need to respond to your grace today God, would you bring them near? Would you make those who feel like outsiders take on a new identity this morning as a child of the King? We thank you that he came. We thank you that we celebrate his birth and his life, his death and his resurrection. For that is the hope that we have this morning. And it's the hope that we proclaim to a broken world. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. And all of God's people said, Amen.